They're saying, you know, it's just so refreshing to be in His presence, isn't it? You just want to kind of be a sponge and, and soak it in. And... But we do have to move on into God's Word. Because it wouldn't be right for us to come and be in His presence, eat at His table, and not feed ourselves on His Word. Before I jump into the Word this morning, I was just kind of you know, looking around here at this table and I'm looking at all of this stuff and our theme. And you know, I think that these flowers would better be representative of today's message and our theme if you know, they were dead. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of set them over here and, and take them out of the way. And this guy, well... He sort of says it all himself, doesn't he? The life of a Bills fan. (laughs) I feel your pain because deep down I'm a Lions fan. So I know how that goes. So let's get started with the message this morning. And just by a show of hands, who attended LifeQuest at the end of 2013? A couple dozen of you. Now don't say it out loud. Keep your hands up, those of you who are here. And keep them up if you can remember what the title of the message was that Pastor Rob preached on December 29, 2013. Anybody? You're looking at my notes. (laughs) Remember the one thing message? In that message... There were a few questions we wrestled with that week. The first thing that question that Pastor Rob threw out at us was this in your prayer time as you were seeking God this year, 2014, what one thing did you desire of God? And above everything else, if God said to you, I will do one thing that you ask, what did you say was the driving force of your prayer life before God? What was that one thing it was going to be? Now, you probably, since you may not have been here, and those of you who were here don't even remember the name of the message, you probably don't remember some of the the potential things that could have been answers to that question. And perhaps it was a request from God that you made to remove an addiction or a stronghold in your life and you realized that there was this hindrance or roadblock to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ that you wanted removed. For some of you, it might have been your marriage that was the one thing that you were asking God to fix that this year. 
And maybe more than anything else, you decided that the driving force of your prayer life in 2014 was going to be to ask God to fix the person who was making your life so miserable. And that seemed like a really great idea until God handed you a mirror and He said, this is the person whose heart needs to be changed the most. And then there was the second question. It's focused on our spiritual life and was asking God about the one thing that we lacked that hindered us from growing in our relationship with Him. Or how about the question regarding the one thing that you needed to let go of or the one promise of God you needed to claim. And here we are now, ten months, fast forward, October 2014. And here's the first question. Are those things still the driving force in your life today? See, are those still the one things you're passionate enough about that if time and money were not an issue, if sleep was not a barrier, that you would pursue God relentlessly 24-7 like a pit bull on a pot roast? Look, let's just be honest and transparent. We don't remember the message. We don't remember the theme. We don't remember the questions. We don't remember the one thing that we said was the most important thing for us this year. See, I don't exclude myself from this boat. In the times I get frustrated because just in a few short months I've allowed those one things that were so important to fall completely off my radar. See, our passion fades, our focus shifts, our hunger for the pursuit of the God things has significantly diminished. Why is that? Why is it so difficult for so many of us to remain persistently diligent, relentlessly committed in our pursuit of God and His will for our lives? What is it that works so effectively against us? That's the question that we're going to take some time and wrestle with this morning. Last week, Pastor Rob opened this preaching series with a message entitled, Foundational Truths About Zombies. You guys remember that one? So we know that your retention span is somewhere between one week and ten months, right? And that's okay. One of the key points in his message was that through the wound of original sin, all of humanity, each and every one of us, 
has a life-threatening hereditary heart condition, which, if it was a purely physical, and if I wanted to define it in medical terms, I would call it hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But thank God, the focus of this time together this morning here at LifeQuest and the focus of this series of LifeQuest versus Zombies and especially the focus of the title of this message this morning, The Hunger for the Flesh, is not so much about our physical condition as it is about our spiritual condition. Because you see, terms like that wear me out. They wear me out. But you see, if we make the leap from the physical to the spiritual, where in theological terms, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy becomes a hardened heart. And the cause is our sin nature, which was in us before we were jettisoned out of our mother's womb into this world. then it makes the conversation a little easier. You see, each of us disguised as the most beautiful, squinty-eyed, flattened-nosed, pudgy-cheeked, sticky, gooey, slimy, covered, bundles of joy that our families had ever seen We arrived in this world with a hereditary birth defect that was hidden deep in our innermost parts. And it is this sin nature which has left humanity with a zombie-like hunger and craving for what the writers of the original biblical text under the influence of the Holy Spirit described for us as the flesh. The flesh. It's that part of us that recoils at anything that we perceive might cause us to be diminished or become something less than the center of the universe. It's that rebellious, unruly, and obstinate part of our inner self that has no off switch. It's operative 24-7, 365 days a year. And it's that part of us that does not want to be told what to do. The flesh hates to be under authority. It bristles at limits and rules. It resists the idea that it should be accountable to anyone or anything other than its own wishes and desires. And the Apostle Paul, in addressing this issue with the church in Galatia, gives us a candid snapshot of the sort of life that develops when the flesh controls our thoughts and behaviors. He says in Galatians 5.19, reading from the message this morning, it says it's obvious that what kind of life develops out of trying to get your way, your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, 
And moving to slide 5, which has verse 20, it says, Trinket gods, magic show, religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfying wants, a brutal temper and impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits. Verse 21, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. Ugly parodies of community. And often the greatest desire of the flesh is for something or someone that it perceives is forbidden. You want to see your flesh go to war? Stop drinking coffee or soda or alcohol for a month. Tell your friend he needs to burn his prized collection of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit editions. And if that doesn't convince you just how strong the flesh is, hang out with a woman who has vowed to give up everything chocolate. You'll soon realize it's absolutely true. Hell hath no fury like a woman deprived of such things. The flesh is relentless. It's stubborn. It wants what it wants when it wants it. It has no need to apologize. It's always right. It's always justified. It refuses correction. It does not change direction. And it does not want anything to do with God. And if you ever tried to pray for five minutes, you've experienced the flesh in action. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? You set your mind to prayer, and the next thing you know, your mind's quickly, it wants to focus on thousands of other things. It just comes in, fills your mind, distracts you. And in all of those things, They have nothing to do with God. The Apostle Paul tells us the reason for this. He says the explanation can be found in Galatians 5.17. He says the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. And they're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. And when Paul's making this reference, or what he's making reference to here is the same thing that Christ himself said when he was speaking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. See, in John 3, 5 and 6, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And what Jesus and Paul are telling us is that we, as Christians, are the recipients of not one, but two natures. 
the sin nature that we inherited from fallen Adam when we were physically born, and a new divine nature which we received when we willingly accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It was at that moment that we were spiritually birthed into the kingdom of God and into the family of God. And from that point, the challenge that we face is that both natures have tremendous appetites. The one for evil and the other for holiness. And they both desire to be the driving influence over our heart and our soul. And make no mistake, they are always, always, always in conflict with each other. And these opposite appetites are illustrated biblically for us in a number of ways. The sheep is a clean animal and avoids garbage. And then there's the pig who's unclean and enjoys wallowing in his filth. And in Genesis 8, after the rain ceased and the ark settled, and the first creature Noah released from the ark was a, a flesh-eating raven, which having found plenty of food, never returned to the ark. And then Noah released a dove, a clean bird, And the first time it went out, it returned. And then the following week, he released it again. And this time it returned with an olive branch. And that was when no one knew that the waters had receded and it was safe to exit the ark. And you see, our old nature is like the pig in the raven. It's always looking for something unclean on which to feed. And our new nature, on the other hand, it's like the sheep and the dove, yearning for that which is clean and holy. Think Nick Tahoe garbage plate or something more heavenly, like fire grilled filet mignon. Right? Oh, I'm not done yet with homemade sweet potato dumplings and fire-roasted asparagus at Black and Blue in Pittsburgh Plaza. Then you'll have a great visual of just how opposite your sin nature and your divine nature really are. You see, it's no wonder that we as believers at times find ourselves echoing the frustration of the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the believers in Rome, he said this, chapter 7, verse 24, What a miserable person I am. And he says that at the end of a a discourse about his frustration with himself. Romans 7, 15, reading this in the... uh, Contemporary English version says, I don't understand why I act the way I do. I don't do what I know is right. I do these things I hate. 
And you see, Paul realized here that despite knowing in his heart what he should be doing, and despite his best effort to do those things, he continually was drawn back and negatively influenced by something in his body which was more powerful than his will. And he knows what that is. It's his sin nature. And in Romans 7.25 he says, Thank God Jesus Christ will rescue me. Thank God. And you see, this just isn't a belief that was held by the Apostle Paul. There's this other guy in Scripture who goes by the name of Simon Peter. A fisherman by trade. Not exceptionally fond of roosters. But the only thing one in Scripture other than Jesus to have walked on water. He and his brother Andrew were the first two men Jesus invited to follow him. He witnessed that little water to wine thing that Jesus did at the wedding in Cana. And along with the sons of Zebedee, he was the third witness to the transfiguration of Christ. He was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested. He was the first to enter the empty tomb where the body of Christ had been laid. And along with John, he had who had followed him in, they were the ones who discovered the empty grave clothes heaped up on a pile and the handkerchief that covered the face of Christ folded separately in a different location. This is a man who was close to Jesus. And knew Him well. This is the guy who when Jesus asked His disciples, Who do you say I am? Replied in Matthew 16.16, You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. This is the same Peter who when speaking about Jesus said this. In 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. The next slide, verse 4, says, Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In Christ, we have everything, everything we need to overcome the desires of our sin nature. So, why is it so difficult for so many of us to remain persistently diligent and relentlessly committed in our pursuit of God and His will for our lives? Why is it so easy for the one things of today to become our nothings of tomorrow? Well, 
Let's begin to answer that question with a story. And it's quite possible you have heard this story before. And that's okay. This is one of those stories that is worth repeating from time to time. If for no other reason than to be a quick reminder to us about how to go about navigating this battle that rages inside of us to control our hearts. The story begins with a a group of children gathered around their grandfather. And they're filled with this tremendous excitement and great curiosity and expectation. Because earlier that day, there had been a very bad argument that had taken place between a couple of adults that they had witnessed. And they happened to be family members, and the children were eager to hear what their grandfather had to say about it. And one of the children asked a question. He said, Grandfather, what do you think caused that fight today? And well, the old man replied, I believe that we saw today a reflection of an even greater battle that goes on inside of each and every one of us. Unable to control his curiosity, a second child blurted out, What kind of battle, Grandfather? To which the grandfather replied, we all have two wolves inside of us. They live here in our chest. And these two wolves are constantly fighting with each other. And by this time, the children's eyes had grown as big as saucers. And there was this anxiety in them and the One of them shouted out, in our chest too? And before the grandfather could even answer, another one said, and in your chest, grandfather? And the grandfather nodded and said, yes, in my chest too. And he continued, there is a good wolf and a bad wolf. The bad wolf is filled with fear and anger and envy, jealousy, greed, and arrogance. And that good wolf, he's filled with peace and love, hope, courage, humility, compassion, and faith. And these two wolves battle constantly, grandfather said. And then he stopped. And one of the children who just couldn't handle the tension of the silence anymore. He shouted out, Grandfather, please, please, please tell me which wolf wins. And the grandfather simply replied, the one that you feed. And here's a little twist on that allegory this morning that I want to wrap up with. I think it's more applicable in many ways to our life quest versus zombie theme. And it fits very well with this hunger for the flesh idea today. And that thought is, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. 
You know, we hear a lot these days about the importance of a healthy diet. We don't have a problem agreeing with that. It's a great concept, right? What we have is a problem with boundaries and discipline and self-control. You are what you eat. And the American, as Americans, we eat a lot of junk food. Resulting in a lot of very serious but often avoidable health issues. And yet, despite the risk and despite the warnings from the CDC, 34% of us are clinically obese. The average American is 29 pounds overweight. And it's the same idea spiritually. If you gorge yourself on a constant diet of the latest R-rated movies, if you feast on all-you-can-eat buffets of questionable programming offered every night on your television, and you don't even, don't even get me started on the Internet. If those are things that you're consuming, you shouldn't be surprised if you've become spiritually anemic. And if your spiritual intake consists of a, a sugary devotional that you grab on the run and an occasional sermon here and there when you don't have anything else planned on Sunday morning, don't be surprised if you're feeling a, just a little bit sluggish. And if you have to count the time it takes to bless your meal in order to truthfully answer the question that you do you have a prayer life? Or if you're on track to read your entire Bible once in your life by 2025, you, my friends, are at risk of being spiritually malnourished. You see, we're a product of what we take into our hearts. And if we find ourselves constantly taking in that junk that is contrary to God's will, then we're, we're feeding the bad dog. The result of that is that we will gradually begin to behave more and more like Him. Doing a whole heap of stuff that if we threw it all together on one pile and put a name on it, we would call it sin. So if you find yourself feeding the bad dog on a consistent basis, here's a couple of things to think about. The first is, you might just be Sitting at the wrong table. Don't be misled, says in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Bad company corrupts good character. In the contemporary English version, it reads this way. Don't fool yourselves. Bad friends will destroy you. 
Have you ever heard of the average of five rule? It states that over time you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And those people significantly will impact our thinking, our self-esteem, our decision-making process. Now, of course, every one of us is their own person. But research has shown that we are significantly influenced by the friends we keep closest to our hearts. Now stop for a minute and ask yourself, who are the most five influential people in my life? Right now, at this moment. And then ask yourself, which dog inside of you do they feed? Is their influence on your life positive or negative? See, here's something that we begin to realize as we grow more mature. We begin to realize that we don't lose friends. We just learn who the real friends really are. And if your so-called friends are not a positive influence in your life, maybe it's time for you to stand up and walk away. Point number two that I want to make about the bad dog is that if you're consistently feeding the bad dog, maybe you just haven't acquired a taste for good food. Hebrews 5:13 and 14, it says, People who live on milk are like babies who don't really know what is right. Solid food is for mature people who have been trained to know right from wrong. See, it can be easy for us as baby Christians to find ourselves content on a constant diet of cookies and milk. And that's okay for a season maybe, but eventually we must develop a hunger for meatier things and we must train our palates to distinguish between bad tainted flesh and good spiritual food and good Rounded, mature Christians not only know the difference, they have the discipline to resist the temptation to choose poorly. And when we don't do that, we feed the bad dog. The more we feed the bad dog, the stronger he gets. And if we're not careful, we'll starve the good dog to death. And eventually we'll find ourselves like those Jesus rebukes in Matthew 15.8. He looks at them and says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So let's shift to the good dog. Let's talk about him for a minute. You see, that good dog is the one who we should desire to have the larger appetite and the greater hunger.
Matthew 5, verse 6 from the message again says, You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. So how do we go about feeding the good dog? We do that by remaining focused on the things that are only desirable by Him. Philippians 4.8 There's a list of those things. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. And if you're going to remain faithful, we must learn to nourish and feed our divine nature rather than our sin nature. So, let me ask you, do you know there's another type flesh mentioned in Scripture that Jesus said is actually quite good for us to consume on a consistent basis? He talks about it in John chapter 6. Jesus said, I tell you for certain that you won't live unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. But if you do eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life, and I will raise you to life on the last day. My flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you are one with me, and I am with you. The living Father sent me, and I have life because of Him. Now everyone who eats my flesh will live because of me. And he goes on and he says that the bread that comes down from heaven isn't like that. Your ancestors ate. They died. But whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now just in case you're wondering, that's not a call to cannibalism. Right? It's not this bizarre thing. And I'm not going to tell you in detail what that is because I want to encourage you that this week start feeding yourself. Go home. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Start reading in verse 53 to 58. Open a concordance and a commentary and do some digging in, on your own. Consume the Word of God in your own time. You may be surprised what that Scripture really says. What I will tell you is that like 
every piece of Scripture in the Bible. It is the Word of God. And you can trust fully in the power of that Word to transform your life and your heart and equip you and give you the strength to overcome the bad dog. And I'm going to stop and conclude this message right there with this one admonishment. This week, be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you talk about. Most importantly, most importantly, be especially careful about what you eat. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You, as Nathan said, love us so much. God, that despite ourselves, You continually come. And God, You continually woo us and pull us back and draw us close to You. And God, right now in this moment in Your presence, God, I just feel the need to remind myself and everyone here that there is nothing that we have done that will ever separate us from Your love. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that we have ever done, will do in our lives that would ever cause You to turn from us. God, You are the lover of our soul. Continue, God, this week to draw us closer to You. Help us to stay in Your presence, God. Help us to make those hard decisions that starve that bad dog and feed our spirit. Thank You, God. You are awesome. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Finished a little early. If you can hang around and help us tear down, that would be greatly appreciated. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week.